morning, Canyon Hills. It's so great to see you all this morning. Many of you may or may not know this, but I actually have a brother. Some people say that we look identical, and other people say I must have been the adopted one in the family. But growing up, uh, we shared the same room together. We would have bunk beds, we would play games together, we would laugh together, we both collected different things we wanted displayed in our room. I wanted Hot Wheels, he wanted Star Wars figures. And there were a lot of great times that we had, but there were also times when we would argue, times when we would fight, times when I would be so angry at him that I would take rocks and throw them at him at the beach, times that he would be so angry in retaliation that he would tie me to a chair and threaten me that if I screamed that he would tattle on me and just wait for minutes, hours, until my mom would find me tied to a chair. <laughs> There's a lot of great memories that I have with my brother, but one of the things that I learned real quick living with him was simply that there was nothing that I could do, good or bad, that he didn't know about. I couldn't hide anything from him because we shared the same space together. And I would say that he probably knew me better than anybody else in my family did. And as I think about my experience with my brother, I can't help but wonder what it would have been like to be one of Jesus' siblings. Maybe to hear the stories of how they climbed trees or they went fishing or just the, the different stories that they would tell, the late night conversations they would have in their room just talking back and forth to be able to hear firsthand more in depth about who Jesus was. And that thought excites me because we're starting this brand new series this morning called Stirring. And we're going to be taking a look over the next couple of weeks, a very in-depth approach at the book of James. And when it comes to talking about James and more who wrote James, we kind of already have a clue right off the bat. It's in the title, right? James was written by James. But there's a problem with this, because in the Bible, there are four main Jameses. James I? Jameses? Jameses. James is written in Scripture. We have James, the son of Judas, not Judas Iscariot. James, the son of Alphaeus. James, the son of Zebedee. And James, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, most scholars believe that this letter, this book of James, was actually written by the half-brother of Jesus. And they believe this because in Acts chapter 15 and 21, we read that James, the brother of Jesus, was a leader in the early church of Jerusalem. And he would know the congregation. He would write in a very Jewish style. And as you read the book of James, it's very Jewish in nature. It's very personal dealing with these Jewish Christians. So it makes sense that the half-brother of Jesus would have written this letter. And that's why this excites me, is because who better to learn about Jesus than from one of his siblings? Someone who knew him best, his in and outs. So we know who wrote the book of James, but what about who he wrote to? Well, James is a fantastic author, and he kind of summarizes it right from the get-go in chapter 1. Take a look at this in James 1.1. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. See, during this time, if you were to read Acts chapter 8, you would have known just after Stephen was persecuted, the church in Jerusalem faced this major persecution of their own. The Jewish Christians were terrified. And as a result of this persecution, they scattered all throughout Judea and Samaria. And so James is writing to these Jewish Christians scattered among the land who are going through extreme times of persecution and hardships and sufferings in their life. 
And James, he, he goes into detail talking really about some of these things that meant the most for his audience, specifically how to deal with people and various situations that you encounter in life because life isn't always easy. There's a lot of hardships in life. And James covers a lot of them in just five short chapters. He talks about poverty, materialism, favoritism. He talks about the orphans, the widows. He talks about true religion. He talks about wisdom. He talks about sufferings and trials and temptations. I could go on and on. He covers it all. In fact, out of 108 verses in the book of James, 59 of them are commands to the reader. That's one out of every two verses in the book of James is a command or a word of encouragement or guidance for his readers to follow after. And he starts by talking about suffering. Because he knew that's what his audience was really struggling with the most. They were living under persecution, really rough and dark times. And so he wrote to encourage them in the midst of their suffering. And there's a lot that can be applied to our own lives today, too, as we start to read through this. And so James, he sets this beautiful foundation right from the get-go that suffering, believe it or not, it's actually a part of God's redemptive plan for our lives. That when we go through these pressures in life, that they're designed to grow something inside of us. A trust in God that allows us to be joyful no matter what it is that we're experiencing. You know, when I read that for the very first time, when I read James first, I thought, there's no way. I mean, really, come on, how, when I'm suffering, when I'm going through hardships and bad times in my life, how on earth can I be joyful? I'm going to do whatever I can to fix the problem myself. I'm going to be focused on trying to figure out what to do. I'm not going to be joyful that I'm suffering. But then I read a very interesting story that changed my perspective on it. And it was a story of a woman by the name of Joni Erickson Tata. I don't know if you know this lady or not, but back in the 1970s, when she was 17 years old, she was very athletic. She was going for scholarships, all different kind of things. And one day she decided she wanted to swim in the Chesapeake Bay. So she climbed up on top of a rock and she jumped off and went into the Chesapeake Bay. But it was a jump that would change her life forever. You see, she misjudged the depth of the water. And when she hit the water, she just didn't hit water. She hit rock. And immediately she broke her neck and severed her spine. That one decision she just decided to make would make her a quadriplegic for the rest of her life. And over the next couple months and years, she went through intense physical therapy and rehab, just trying to figure out how to function as a human being with this current new state of life. And it was in the midst of this that she found God, or God found her. And as she started to reflect and think, man, I could sit here and wallow in the pain and the suffering and the hardship that life has dealt me, or I can do something about it. And so she prayed and she asked God what he would have her do, and it was amazing. She went on to start Christian talk shows. She had Christian radio programs. She's founded and started charities giving wheelchairs and necessary medical aid to children with disabilities who would never be able to get them themselves. She's done podcasts and she writes weekly blogs about enduring through your suffering. And she always points back and she says, yeah, look, in life, there are hard things that happen. 
But if we choose to give those moments over to God, he can turn them, even the worst, darkest of situations, into something great. Because I'm now able to reach a group of people I never even knew existed. I never even knew about before. And she's finding joy in the midst of her suffering. But where does that type of joy come from? What does that joy look like? Well, this is what James writes to us. Look at this in James 1 verses 1 through 4. It says, James, a servant of God of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. See, if you live on planet Earth, bad things are bound to happen to you. We know this because we even have a law that talks about it. It's called Murphy's Law. Has anybody heard that before? Murphy's Law says anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Exactly. It's just a fact of life. Now, notice James, when he's talking here, he doesn't say if you encounter various trials. No, he says when you encounter trials. See, folks, the truth is, there's no escaping it. Bad times come into all of our lives. Sufferings are a normal part of the human experience. Jesus himself even told us this in John 16, verse 33, when he said, in this world, you will have trouble. Not, you might, it may happen, it might occur. No, he's letting us know you will have trouble. Hard times are a part of our life. And I'm not saying that to make this sermon a super downer this morning, but no, it's rather, it's to prepare you, to allow you the opportunity to get ready for it. Because here's the point when we look at it, is that when we face these pressures, if they are rightly faced, they can become avenues to spiritual growth. But if they're wrongly faced, they can become temptations to evil. They can lead us astray in our life, and we really need to take stock of that and understand what it is that James is trying to show us here. But what do we do when hard times come then? How do we respond to this? Well, this is where James says to consider it all joy. To consider all joy. This word consider in the Greek, it's a mental evaluation. It's to consider your present circumstance to have an end result of joy. And once again, that's hard to do. That's difficult for us to think about. And I struggled as I sat preparing my message this week, trying to figure out how to illustrate this. And as I was talking with my wife, Tiffany, she gave me a perfect example that just popped out to me that I love. And she says, do you remember last year? I was like, yes, how could we forget last year? There was a lot of hardship last year. There was suffering, anxiety, pain, people lost jobs, people died. It was a rough last year for everyone. And even for our family, I mean, at the height of it, when COVID was really strong, businesses were shutting down and I worked from home and trying to figure out how to live stream from home and do all these different things. There was a lot going on in life. But then she says, but do you remember what happened in being at home? As I started to think about it and we were talking about it, I got to be home with my wife to help raise our newborn. I got to be home to experience his first laugh, which was captured in this shot. To see his first roll. To be there for his first crawl. To be there for his first tantrum. I could have missed that one, but you know. 
to be there for those firsts. You see, if I was at work, I would have missed every single one of these things. And it's only now that looking back at even as horrible of a year that that was, I can see joy in it because I now have a stronger bond with my son than I ever would have had before. This is what James is talking about. It's only once we can look past our current situation that we can see its end result to have some kind of joy, to have some kind of meaning that we can learn from it, that we can grab a hold of and really express in our lives. You see, trials, they come into our life for a reason. Bad times, they are not an end in and of themselves. No, in fact, they're designed to produce something in you. And that's an endurance. And endurance is the quality of the mature. It's something you don't get through praying. It's something you get through daily practice of going through trials. Endurance is a part of growing in life. And whether you want to believe it or not, we're growing. If you were a part of the family of God, you are in a continual state of growing. But the end result of that growing process, James tells us, is that we would be made perfect and complete. But we're not there yet. We're still in transition. We're like a caterpillar that's becoming a butterfly. We're still growing. We're still changing in our life. And part of that change is understanding that God doesn't just pull us out of the hard situations we face. When we're struggling, when we're going through sufferings or bad times, and we pray, God, remove me from the situation, that's not how he responds often. No, he says, I want you to ask for wisdom in how to deal with the situation. So that way you can grow as a result of it. That you can build endurance that strengthens your faith, that strengthens your character, but starts by asking for wisdom. And that's what James tells us. Look at how James continues in verses 5 through 8. He says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. See, wisdom involves seeing things from God's perspective. It's only once we can begin to really see things from God's perspective that we can count it all as joy that we can consider it as joy because we can see it's just one part of a bigger picture. He's patterning our life into this beautiful mosaic. But we can't see it yet because we're too close. It's only once we're through some of these hardships we can look back and say, man, all these places in my life where I suffered, I now see how they have prepared me to be right here, right now, and to deal with whatever it is that I'm going through right now. And God wants to give that to you. He wants to build that in your life, but it only comes when you begin to ask him for real wisdom in your life. But what does this wisdom look like? Well, James gives us two illustrations here as he continues. Look at this in verses 9 through 11. It says, Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humility, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat, and withers the plant. Its blossom falls, and its beauty is destroyed. 
In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. We're going to talk about this a little bit more in chapter 3, but what James is really getting here is he's talking about the man in the midst of poverty. Those who are struggling financially. And it's relatable because how can you experience real joy when you're struggling financially? Once again, I can experience this and I can relate to this because when my son was born, we had NICU bills, we had hospital bills, we had infertility bills, we had student debt, we had credit card debts, we had uh, animal surgery bills, we had an oversized rent for an undersized place. And here I am holding my son for the very first time thinking, man, what a joy this should be. But in my head, I'm thinking, how am I going to pull this off? How am I going to provide for him? And some of that joy was robbed. But as I read these passages, I'm encouraged by what James says because he's saying those who are in these lowly positions, they have something to glory. And that's their position in Christ. Because you serve a God who's faithful. And if you come to God and you ask him and you submit your needs to him, he will provide again and again and again. And our life is testimony to that. We saw that happen over and over and over again, people providing and helping us out. And it was such a blessing. It allowed us to experience joy in that moment. Now, maybe there's some of you sitting here thinking, well, what's wrong or bad about being rich? I mean, I know they say money can't buy happiness, but is there anything wrong with at least being miserable and in comfort? (laughs) Well, I want to share with you something a very wise mentor once told me. Someone who's been very instrumental in helping me through some of the most difficult situations of my life. He said this, Mo money, mo problems. <laughs> and I love this because how true is this? When you're rich, you're financially comfortable. When you're financially comfortable, you don't really have many needs because if you need something, you just go out and buy it because money is not an object for you. And when you don't really have needs, guess what? It's not long before you don't really need God. Think about that. And when you come to God, it's not out of a place of a desire or a longing or a need in your heart. It's more out of a place of, I'm doing God a favor. But the Lord makes it very clear. He gives to no man anything unless they come with their hands open. Unless they come empty-handed before him. Because wealth of this world, it just fades away. And if we're trying to measure our success, our status, who we are as Christians or people based off of our wealth, we're only going to be let down because it fades away. It's fleeting. It's temporary. It's like grass. And that's what James tells us. He, He gives us this illustration of grass, which made sense to his audience because they came from an agricultural economy. They would know that in the spring you'd plant the grass and in the summer it would mature, but in the fall it would die. Everybody knew grass doesn't last. But neither does our wealth. Our wealth will fade away. And once you realize that, we can understand that wealth is really just poverty in disguise because we're always chasing after the next thing. It never brings us the happiness or the satisfaction or the real joy that God is calling us to. And once we understand this, we grab a hold of this wisdom, we can begin to see things from God's perspective. 
to know, yeah, maybe I am suffering in the midst of this moment right now, but I know God is doing something because he is faithful. Because I have seen him do it again and again and again, and I'm going to watch how he works, how he allows me to endure and persevere through these trials in my life. James kind of wraps up this section in verse 12 by saying this, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. See here, James is talking about why we as believers should endure. He's talked about the how, about asking for wisdom to consider it as all joy, but now here's the why. And he says this, and this is so cool when you look at it, the reason that we can face hard times today is because of the promise of good times tomorrow. The reason we can face the hard times today is because we have a promise of good times tomorrow, of a future reward, an end result of being made perfect and complete, a crown of life. That's worth enduring and persevering through. And there are so many people out there who say, man, this is just a bait and switch of God. That God is putting all these trials and these temptations and these sufferings into my life so that way I run to him and grab this crown of life. That's the furthest thing from the truth. I know it. You know it. James knew it. And look what James goes on to say in verses 13 through 18. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be kind of first fruits of all he has created. See, James is showing us that our temptations, they're designed, they're tailored after our own human desires. The problem is we have a sinful human flesh. We naturally give in to it. And it's real. It's powerful. And James is warning us, do not give in to the temptations in front of you because they will lead to death. Now, did anybody notice that James shifted from trials to temptations? Did anybody catch that? Do you know what the difference between the two is? Let me tell you. Trials come from the outside in. Temptations come from the inside out. Trials bring life. Temptations bring death. Trials bring a maturing. Temptations bring a maturing of sin in our life. See, God never brings temptations into our life. Those come out of our life. He does, however, bring some trials to refine us, to grow us in our lives. That's who he is. That's his character. That's what he wants to do with us. The source of our problem, it's our own sinful nature. Because here's the point, apart from God, we are not wise enough to see the own poison of our sin. And even if we were wise enough to see it, truthfully, we would still rebel and reject it. Because for some strange reason, we love to do what we hate and we hate to do what we love. That's our nature. But 
God's in the process of changing our nature. God's in the business of restoring our desires to in line, be in line with his desires and what he wants for our life. And it's so powerful when we really understand that. So how do we understand that? What does that look like? How do we align our desires, our nature with God's nature? What is James really trying to tell us? Well, it's simply this, that we can't just be hearers of the word. We have to be doers of the word. We have to do what Jesus has called us to do. Look at how he ends James chapter 1. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. The religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Wow. (laughs) There's a lot to unpack there. And you'll notice over the next couple chapters, the next couple weeks, James is really going to pull parts of this out and expound upon it. So we're going to leave that as a cliffhanger for you. But there's a couple things I want to mention real quick. As we look at this passage, we think of religion in terms of what we say a message that we profess. But that's just one aspect of Christianity. Our religion is made up more than just beliefs. It's also seen in our actions. That our truth should match our tongue. That we should be showing our love for God in the way not only that we treat other people, but how we live out a pure life as well. You see, it's easy for us to minister to people who have no needs, to keep our religion confined to the socially acceptable, those who talk like us and those who dress like us. But as James shows us, that's not true religion. And here's the slap in the face, the wake-up call for all of us. Not all religion is acceptable to God. What? You mean all of that effort that I've been putting into this thing? All of the religious things that I have done in my life may not be acceptable to God. I don't get that. I don't understand that. James is saying if it's done from a wrong place, wrong heart, wrong attitude, yeah, you're only deceiving yourself. But you can't fool God. You can't do it. So then what is true religion? What does real religion look like? Well, James says that it really involves three things. It's a change in your conversation, it's a change in your compassion, and a change in your character. 
So let's talk about our conversation. Did you know in one day you speak about 16,000 words? That's enough to fill a 64-page book. In one week, enough words to fill a 950-page book. In one month, enough words to fill a 1,920-page book. In one year, four volumes of the encyclopedia. One day, you speak a 64-page book. What would happen if somebody got a hold of that book? What would they learn about you? What would they learn about who you are? How you deal under pressure? How you talk to your spouse, your children? How you talk about your boss or your coworkers? How you deal when times get tough? What would they learn about you? If that doesn't terrify you, you're either a saint or you're deceiving yourself. And unfortunately, I think it's the latter because we are so good at deceiving ourselves. We are so good at making excuses and trying to justify things. Well, I can't speak praiseworthy 100% of the time. I'm human. Nobody can do that. Only Jesus could let nothing unwholesome come out of his mouth. So 97% of the time, I'm okay. The other 3%, well, that's room for human error. But James says that's not enough. He says that other 3% is exactly what I'm talking about. You can't just skate by this. It's like saying, you know what? I'm not really a murderer. 97% of the time, I don't murder people. That other 3%, we're not going to talk about. But if I kill someone in that 3%, does that still make me a murderer? Absolutely. And that's why James is saying, you have to be so careful with your tongue. An unbridled tongue, an uncontrolled tongue can be a destroyer of religion, a destroyer of faith. It can ruin souls and lead to damnation. And especially when we're facing hard times in life, when we're suffering, when we're going through hardships or bad times, we need to be very careful with what comes out of our mouth because people are watching and listening. And true religion should affect how we speak to other people. But that's just one part. Here's the other part, is that true religion should also affect our compassion. True religion moves us to action. It moves us to action that we don't just see the needs of a hurting world around us and say a good word and then walk on by. No, we see that need and we get involved. We step in, we get our hands dirty in a broken and a hurting world that is desperately in need of help. And Pastor Carlos is going to talk a lot about this next week, but I want to make a real quick mention. James kind of singles out two groups of people real quick. He says the orphans and the widows. But he gives a a qualifying address. He says, in their distress. You know what that means? It means those who are alone and don't have anybody to take care of them. True religion is helping those who can't care for themselves, who have nobody else on their side. And it goes far beyond the orphans, the widows, it's the homeless, the, the, the unborn. There's so many different people that meet that category. And James says, this is what true religion is. Not only that it's seen in our words that everything that comes out of our mouth glorifies God, but it's also seen in our compassion about how we get involved in other people's lives, how we help those who are unlike us, who don't come from the same background that we do. But there's a third part to it as I close. 
And the third part is that true religion should also impact your character. Genuine religion is about really getting involved in this world, but yet not getting stained by the moral filth of this world. You see, true religion calls us to take that step, to go out to the hurting, to go to Juarez, to Long Beach, to do all these different things, to get involved in a broken and hurting world, but at the same time, not let the world rub off on us. And I want you to notice what James says here. He doesn't actually say when we truly look at this that we should be keeping other people from being unstained by the world. No, I'm not in charge of the moral responsibility of other people. I have a hard enough time doing that for myself. (laughs) Should I care for my brothers and sisters? Absolutely. But I'm not responsible for the words that they say, the things that they do. I am, however, 100% responsible for what I decide to do how I decide to get involved. And once again, we like to justify and make excuses. Oh, I can't be pure all the time. I can't live a perfect, unsinful life that just doesn't happen. So uh, a little bit of sin is okay in my life as long as the most of it is good. Let me ask you this. If you knew a glass of water had 1% of poison in it, would you drink it? Odds are probably not. Why? Because the whole thing is contaminated. Same thing is true in our lives. And that's why when we get involved in the world, we've got to be cautious not to let the world rub off on us. It doesn't mean that we need to be fearful of the world, but we just need to be careful. And this is the dilemma that James gives us in chapter 1, verse 27. It says, true religion, genuine religion is about getting involved, going out to the hurting, ministering to those who have needs, who are broken, who are desperate for help, coming alongside of them, but realizing in the process, you're going to encounter some really tough situations. You're going to be confronted with some really hard things, but that shouldn't prevent you from going. In fact, it should inspire you to keep going to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to get involved all the while not letting yourself become stained by this world. How do we do that? What does this look like? Well, I think that all we have to do is look at the example of Jesus. Jesus came from a perfect holy heaven down to an imperfect and dirty world. He walked with us. He laughed with us. He cried with us. He spoke with us. He rubbed shoulders with gluttons and sinners and prostitutes and adulterers, but he never became one of them. Jesus was all about helping restore the fallen, not falling himself. And if we're really going to be like that, the first step is to have Jesus inside of us. By being able to look at our situation and say, God, what is it you're compelling me to do? God, give me wisdom in the midst of this moment, who I'm supposed to help, how I'm supposed to go out, how I put my faith in action, not just to be a hearer of the word, but to be a doer of the word and what I say and how I act and what I do and how I respond when bad things happen in my life. And that's why this series is so perfect for us. It's called stirring because our faith should be stirring something inside of us. We have a lot of problems in our world right now. How can we have faith in the real world today? Well, James gives us a clue right off the bat. He says, your faith starts by asking God for wisdom, seeking God, 
having God live, breathe, reside in you. So everything that comes out of your mouth, that comes out of your body by what you do or how you treat others is influenced by who God is. And that you start loving on other people in a world that needs so much love right now. The question is, are you willing to put your faith in action? And over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about some practical ways you can do that. Some real ways to have your faith stirring something inside of you that doesn't just compel you, it leads you to go. To be the hands and feet of Jesus in this hurting world. Would you pray with me? Father, there's so much in the book of James. So much gold that James has left for us to be able to just pull from. Father, we live right now in the midst of a hurting and a broken world. And we know that you have called us. Father, you've called us to go. You've stirred in us to put our faith in action and minister to those who are in need of help. Father, and in the midst of our hardships, to run to you, to seek you, to find joy. God, maybe some of us here this morning, we're in really hard times right now. Maybe they haven't ended from last year. And it feels like we're drowning. It feels like we're overwhelmed. But Father, I pray that you just allow us to see our lives from your perspective. God, that we would be able to see the end result. God, what you are leading us to, what you are working us to, so we can grab a hold of that hope. We can grab a hold of that joy that you've placed before us. God, we're ready. We're ready to put our faith in action. Stir in us as we go from this place today to be more like you, to have you be a part of our life, to put our faith in action. Pray this in your name.